Thank you so much. Take your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. Someone asked me, do you believe God's interested in Numbers? And I said, well, I guess he is. He wrote a whole book of the Bible called Numbers. So I'm certain that he is, and uh, the Bible has a lot to say about uh, Numbers. There were uh, 5,000 fed. There were uh, 120 in the upper room. There were 3,000 saved on the day of Pentecost. We know all this because God wrote in his word about numbers. And uh, so Numbers chapter 13 is joy to be back. Thank you, Pastor, uh, for letting me come back to 10 miles. Always a, a joy and an honor. And certainly encouraged in what God is doing here. And, um, you know, McLeansboro is not a big city. It's a small town. And, um, but there are people everywhere. You drive uh, 30 to 45 miles from this place right here. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And, um, but this is a, uh, God's raised up a great work here. And, um, and I just encourage you to keep doing what you've been doing. Love people. Uh, preach the gospel. Win people to Christ. And, uh, and, and to stay in fellowship one with another, encourage each other. One of the great traits of the first church was that the, they were in one accord. Constantly, it says in the book of Acts, they were in one accord. And that doesn't mean they were in a small automobile. That means they were getting along with each other. And, and uh, none of us, we don't dot our I's exactly the same. We don't cross our T's, but if if we've been saved by the grace of God, our sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb, our name's been written as we sang a moment ago in the Lamb's Book of Life, then that makes us brothers and sisters. And we're going to spend all of eternity together. And so if we're going to spend eternity together, then we ought to be trying to get along down here on this earth. And we ought to be making it, trying to make a difference for the cause of Christ. And um, so right here in... in uh, Hamlin County and McLeansboro, God's raising up. And there's other good churches as well, and we know that. But right here, it's kind of, to me, it's kind of a miracle church, uh, the numbers that you have coming out of COVID and, and, uh, and to see the rebound that you've made. And uh, the average church that we're with, the pastor tells us they lost about uh, 25 to 30% of folks that did not come back. And, you know, my deal is we don't want to lose anyone, but there are others out there that uh, we need to be uh, winning, we need to be talking to, need to be witnessing, and uh, go after them. Amen? And so don't uh, just be encouraged. Don't take for granted what you have. I think that's what I'm trying to say tonight. Don't take for granted what God has given you here at 10 Mile uh, Baptist Church. And uh, I've got a lot of uh, history one of my uncles uh, wrote me about uh, when he was a child growing up that, that often he would visit with, uh, with uh, uh, Jerry Phillips, Paul and Reva's son. They'd come to 10 Mile. And so one of the first churches, not the first one, but one of the first churches I preached at when I was called to ministry was uh, here at 10 Mile in the old building. I'm talking about the old, old building. How many of you remember the old building? The old, old building. These are the old people right here. Okay. That was a setup. And, uh, but, um, and then my, uh, my brother, Mark, pastored here for a good period of time. My dad was here for uh, some time. 
And so I've got a little bit of history and heritage, and, and I always enjoy coming here. Had um, lunch with uh, Larry and Betty Lou. Always enjoyed being around these people and, uh, and talking to them. They great people, salt of the earth. Uncle Robert and his wonderful wife Joyce are here tonight. And um, I love my family. I appreciate you so very much. My uh, father-in-law and mother-in-law, Mary and Cy Hampson, hold up your hand over here. These are Mary and Cy. I'm not making you stand up so you can hold your hand up. All right, there you go. These are, uh, if you're going to have in-laws, this is the kind of in-laws you want right here, all right? Look at all these young people down here. Wow, young people, thank you for being here. And uh, sitting down front under the spout where the glory comes out. Amen. And... Uh, so uh, who else is here, Connie? If I missed, uh, I can't see who it is. There's somebody sitting in front of them. Oh, yeah. Wow. Benjamin, love you, buddy. I saw him this morning. And um, got a couple of nephews and his brother. Where's Jonathan? Is he backslidden tonight? Just tell him I said he was backslidden. All right. Hey, man, love picking on my family. Do I have any other relatives here tonight that I've missed? Anybody claims me and I don't know who you are. All right. All right. If you haven't found the book of Numbers by now, go back to the front of your Bible. There's a page there that lists all the books of the Bible, and you can find it. That's there for two reasons. That's there because you might have recently just got saved, and you don't know where anything's at in the Bible, and that page helps you find the books of the Bible and then it's there for those of us who are over 60. We know it's in there, but sometimes we just have trouble finding it. Amen. And um, so, all right, numbers, let me get, grab my glasses here, and uh, let's read a few verses, out, and then keep your Bibles open. We'll look at uh, several verses here in this great, great story. Numbers chapter 13. Let me begin reading at verse number 17. And Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And said unto them, Get ye up this way southward, and go up into the mountains, and see what see the land, what it is, and the people that dwelleth therein, whether they be strong or weak, few or many, and what the land is that they dwell in, whether it be good or bad, and what cities they be that they dwell in, whether in tents or in strongholds, and what the land is, whether it be fat or lean whether there be wood therein or not, and be of good courage, and bring of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe, ripe grapes. He says in verse number 20, be ye of good courage. Now there's 12 of these spies that are going to go look this land over. So he says to all 12 of them, be ye of good courage. Now I'll go, if you would, to verse number 26. Numbers 13 and verse 26. And they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to all the congregation of the children of Israel unto the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them. And to all the congregation showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. This is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled, 
and they're great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched under the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land, that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. Now get the picture of the setting of our story tonight. God's people have been in Egypt as nothing more than slaves to Pharaoh and the Egyptian people for a period of 400 years. Can you imagine that? Being in slavery for 400 years of hard labor and doing the task of the work of, uh, for the Egyptians. Now, not a day's gone by, but while God has been very aware of the condition of his people, God always knows the condition of his people. We may fool one another, but we cannot fool God. And now the time has come that God wants his people out of Egypt. Now listen to this very carefully. God never moves a people or a person from a place, but what he doesn't have a better place prepared for them. Let me say that again. God never moves a people or a person from a place, but what he doesn't have a better place prepared for them. One of these days, and I believe one of these days soon, a trumpet is going to sound. And, and, that, and then Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the dead in Christ, shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet him in the air. I'm expecting Jesus to come back at any moment now. And, 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 but he's not just coming to take us out of this old sin-cursed earth. He's coming to take us to a far, far better place. And he's got a place prepared for these people that we just read about. It's called the promised land. It's called the land of Canaan. I've heard preachers say that it was a type of heaven, but actually there's, it's not a type of heaven. It's a lot better place than where they've been, but it's not heaven. There was death in this land, there was sickness in this land, there were wars to be fought in this land, there were problems in this land. There's none of that in heaven, thank God. And so, you know the story how God does all kinds of miracles to get his people out of Egypt. He changes the water to blood. Uh, he sends the plague uh, on the cattle and, and the plague of locusts and the frogs and and plague after plague after plague. For the Egyptians, it was plagues. But for God's people, it was miracles. And then, finally, Pharaoh says to Moses, you can go. And you can take your people, and you can leave and get out of here. And they begin their journey. 
the scholars tell us between two and a half to three million Jews were living in Egypt. Wow, that's a big city. Two and a half million to three million people. And how's he getting them out of Egypt? How's he leading them out of Egypt? He puts his hand on a man. I'm not against committees. I'm not against boards. I serve on both of them. But nowhere in this book did God ever use a committee or his board a board to lead people. He always put his hand on a man. One of the reasons that that's, there's so much trouble in the Southern Baptist Convention today is we've got committees upon committees upon committees upon committees. And what we need is some men of God with courage and backbone to preach the word of God the way it is to people the way they are without fear and without favor. And so God put his hand on Moses, and here they are. They're going out of Egypt. Do you see this in your mind? Two and a half million people following Moses to the promised land. They come to the Red Sea, and God does another miracle. He makes a highway. He parts the waters, and they walk across on dry land. And then you would think that if anybody had reason to celebrate, if anybody had reason to rejoice, it would be these people. They've just seen the hand of God. They've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. And now he's just parted the Red Sea and let them come across. But when they get to the other side, they begin to complain and gripe and bellyache. It does seem like sometimes the more God does for us, the less we appreciate it. I told you this morning, I love doing things for my children and for my grandchildren, but I do want them to be appreciative. I do want them to say thank you, and I think God loves doing things for us, but I think he wants us to thank him and be appreciative of it. And so, so now we're at the story. Moses, Moses has picked 12 spies. Now get this. These are 12 of the best. These are leaders in each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he has chosen 12 of the best to go down and spy this land out. And he just told them, you're going down, you're going to see some stuff, but be of good courage. And then go down and and bring me back a report. What, what is going on at the promised land? And, and what do they have down there? What are the people like there? What are we up against? They all 12 go down, and they see the same identical thing. All 12 of them. What do they see? They see this land of opportunity. They see this land that, that grows grapes so big that it takes two of them to carry one big cluster. This is the land that flows with milk and honey. This is the land of promise. They've heard about this land. This is the land that God has told them is their land. But wait a minute. They all 12 see the bad stuff too. They all see the negative stuff. What do they see? They see giants so big that it makes them look like grasshoppers in their sight. They see these great big wall cities. They see all the obstacles and all the problems. All 12 saw the same identical thing. Now, when they come back to Moses to file the report, something strange happens. There are two distinct opposite reports. How in the world can this happen? How can you go look at the very same thing 
And there's two opposite reports. Let me tell you what happened. Ten of those guys went, and they saw the land of opportunity. They saw the land that grew these grapes so big and flowed with milk and honey and the land of promise, but they decided to major upon the obstacles. Two of those guys went, and they saw the obstacles. They saw the giant so big. They saw the great big wall city. They saw all the problems, but they decided to major upon the opportunities. The difference between a winner and a loser in life, and especially in the Christian life, is those who major upon the obstacles and those who major upon the opportunities. The loser says, look at the obstacles. The winner says, look at the opportunities. The loser says, look at the problems. The winner says, but look at the potential. The loser says, we'll die. The winner says, we'll try. The loser says there's no way. The winner says God can make a way. I want to talk to you for just a few moments tonight on how to keep from being a could have been. Did you know all five of these guys, all 12 of these guys had the same opportunity? All 12 of them could have been winners. Did you know all their names are listed in the book? If you begin chapter 13, where we were at, and verse number 4, it lists all 12 of these five. Of the tribe of Reuben was Shamu. I thought there was a whale down in SeaWorld. But that's one of these five. There's another one called Shaphat. What a name to name your son. Shaphat. And there's another one called Egal. That, that sounds like a character on one of these video games from outer space somewhere, Egal. Some of the weirdest names you've ever heard in your life. But wait a minute. There's two of these guys that we oftentimes name our sons after. Joshua and Caleb. Why don't we name our son Shamu? I'll tell you why. Because we like to be identified with winners. We don't want to be identified with losers. How often have I heard a pastor say, well, that man could have really made a mark for God. Well, that lady could have done something wonderful for the Lord. But now, it's like there could have been. It's like they're one of the ten. They're so depressed and they're so defeated. They're so discouraged. I'm going to give you five things tonight. How to keep from being a could have been. Number one, if you're going to be a Joshua and a Caleb, you've got to do like they did. You've got to learn how to put God first in your life. You know what they knew? You know what they realized? You know what they understood? God had already said that they're to have no other God before the true and the living God. You know, you know when God tells you something in this book right here, people, as the old saying goes, you can take it to the bank. It's good. It's solid. You can trust the word of God. You can, prom you can trust the promises of God. God's already told them this is their land. And Joshua and Caleb knew that God was right. And they were to, they were to put no other God before the true and the living God. And if you're going to keep from being a could have been, you've got to keep God number one in your life. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You understand that there's nothing wrong with you having things? There's not anything wrong with you having nice stuff. 
There's not anything wrong with you living in a nice home or driving a nice car or having a boat or a camper unless the things come between us and God. If you have a boat that takes you out of church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, you probably ought to sell the boat. It's not that the boat itself is sinful, but it's that you've allowed the boat to come between you and God. What do we do on the first day of the week? We go to the house of God. We go to church. That's one way that you seek you first the kingdom of God. We, we're faithful to the house of God, forsaken not. You've got a scripture verse right outside here talking about forsaking not the assembling of yourselves together as the like manner of some is. We come to the house of God on Sunday. And, and that it's the Lord's day, but we don't treat it as the Lord's day in America anymore. We treat Sunday as though it's just another day. And friend, it's not just another day. It is the Lord's day. And, and, and he wants to have number one place in your life. He doesn't want to be second place. You know, when I was growing up in, in my mom and dad's house, you know, we never one time, I never one time ever remember having a discussion on Saturday night whether we were going to go to church on Sunday morning. We just knew that come Sunday morning that you were going to church. You were going to the house of God. We never, and then Connie and I got married, and we've got three children. We never one time had a debate or a discussion about whether we were going to go to church on Sunday. You want to know why? Because it's the Lord's Day. That's where you're supposed to be. And even if you're on vacation, you ought to find a place to worship the Lord. Did it get quiet in here? Did I say something strange? No, that's the way we used to be. Did you know, and I've probably said this a 10 mile before, but it's worth saying again. Did you know? That it used to be a time in America when they, when they would look at the church to see what the church was going to do before the world made decisions about what they were going to do. You know, we never played basketball or football on Wednesday night when I was growing up. You wonder why you didn't play ball on Wednesday night? Because they knew at the school it was prayer meeting night. They knew that. But now, they don't care. And you know why they don't care? I think it's because we haven't cared a whole lot. Con and I travel week after week across America, and we go down to the hotel to, to get us some breakfast on Sunday morning before we go to church, and, and there will be ball teams. It's 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, and there's ball teams, and they're, they're going to go play ball. They can't even wait till the afternoon to do it anymore. They're playing on Sunday morning. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. We sing God bless America. God's not going to bless America if we're not willing to put him first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. You're going to keep from being a could have been. You've got to have God first in your life. Number two, if you're going to keep from being a could have been, you've got to separate yourself from the losers. Now, you know what Joshua and Caleb did when they got back to camp? They distanced themselves from the other ten. Cool water. Amen. Anybody else need a drink? There's two bottles. As far as I know, I don't have anything. Take your chance. And, uh, but they separate themselves. Now, I'm not talking about uh, being a Pharisee. I'm not talking about sticking your nose up in the air and thinking that you're better than everyone else because you're a Christian. The world has seen enough of that junk. 
I'm not talking about that. But I'm simply saying, if you're going to, if you're going to soar with the eagles, you can't be hanging out with the turkeys. When a young man comes to me and he says, I believe God called me to preach. And I'm going to go to Bible college. I'm going to study to be a preacher. And he says, can you give me some advice? You know what the first thing I always tell young people is? Get with the right crowd. You mean in, in like a Christian uh, university, a Christian college? Yes. There's a right crowd and there's a wrong crowd. In the public school, there's a right crowd, there's a wrong crowd. Young man comes to me and says, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. Can you give me some advice? I always tell them, get with the right crowd. A young man comes to me and says, I'm going to join the Navy. Can you give me some advice? I said, I'll pray for you. <laughs> Just kidding. But if you're, if you're going to keep from being a could have been, if you want to be a Joshua and a Caleb, you've got to stay away, away from the people that's going to be pulling you down. You've got to stay away from the negative crowd. You've got to stay away from the people that all the time complain and then griping and belly aching. We're driving down here tonight. My father-in-law talking about a guy that you never, ever wanted to ask him how he was doing. You want to know why? He would tell you how he was doing. And it would be a 30-minute lecture of his medical history. Hey, folks, when people say, how are you doing? We don't want your medical history. We just want to know, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing good, or I'm having a bad day, and then go on. Now, I'm not talking about somebody's been in a bad accident or somebody's got a terminal disease. I'm not talking, I'm just talking about people, oh, man, I stumped my toe. You know what I tell them? Be glad you got one to stump. <laughs> How's that working for you? But some people are like that, preacher. They just love to complain and gripe and bellyache. They're never happy about anything. They're always finding something uh, uh, to be upset about. And, and, and if the piano's on that side, they'd rather it be on this side. And, and, and if the carpet is uh, whatever color this carpet is, they want it to be another color. If there's, if there's a curtain in the baptistry, they don't want one. If there's, not one, if there's not one, they want one. They're never happy. They're never satisfied. They're always complaining. They're always griping. They're always belly. Listen to me, people. You don't want to hang around these people. Because if you hang around them long enough, after a while, you'll be complaining just like them. Let me, by the way, let me say this to young parents. Your pastor is not perfect. I said this morning, he's made mistakes. He'll make other mistakes, all of us. We're all sinners, every one of us. But if you go home in front of your children and you criticize the pastor in front of your children, one of these days, one of your kids might get in a little trouble and you're going to want a pastor. You're going to want somebody that's going to help you and pray for you and, and give you some direction and encouragement. But if you've been criticizing your pastor in front of your children, they're not going to listen to him. They're going to think that you must think he's, not a very good man because you criticized. You had fried preacher for Sunday dinner. That, that's a wrong thing to do. We, we keep a great attitude. We keep a great spirit. And we find things to be encouraged about. And we encourage each other. I talked this morning about edification, edifying, and, and, and encouraging one another. You're going to keep from being a could have been. You've got to separate from the losers. Number three, not only are you going to separate from the 
from the losers. And not only are you going to put God first in your life, but number three, you're not going to be intimidated by this old world. Now Joshua and Caleb, when they come back, it's ten against two. So they're obviously in the minority. Ten against two. But they're not intimidated. You want to know why they're not intimidated? They know that God has told them this is their land. And sometimes you find yourself in the minority and you find yourself drawing a line in the sand and you find yourself saying, okay, wait a minute. This is not right. I was, as oftentimes I'd tell my mom or dad I wanted to do something and they say, no, son, you can't do that. And I, I tell them, I say, everybody's doing it. I said, why can't I do it? Said, they said, first of all, everybody's not doing it. I said, well, just tell me one that's not doing it. They said, you're not doing it. <laughs> so sometimes we draw a line in the sand. We take a stand. And there's some things we don't fold on. There's some things that we don't compromise about. And we don't give in about. And you cannot be intimidated by this world. The, the Bible declares in the book of Psalms, one, uh, Psalm 119 and verse number 46, that we are to testify before, before kings. You know what that means? Not a shame. Doesn't make, make any difference. I've had the privilege to preach to presidents, United States senators, congressmen, numbers and numbers and scores and scores of congressmen and judges and mayors of all sides of the city, judges. And I made up my mind a long time ago many, many years ago, that no matter who came to hear me preach, I would preach the same to them as I preached to everyone else. Years and years ago, like 1980 maybe, 79, 80, 81, right after I first went into evangelism, I was preaching in Calvary Baptist Church and sitting on the second row on the right-hand side was Congressman Paul Simon. At that time, he was a congressman, later on became a United States senator. And he was one of the most liberal senators in all the U.S. Senate. And um, I was preaching that morning a message on America, and it was a hard-hitting message. You know what the devil did? He climbed on my back, and he said, you can't say that with a congressman here. Well, let me tell you something. The congressman needs the same truth that everyone else needs. And I told the truth that morning, and I preached the truth that morning. And afterwards, he and his wife and Teenage son came up on the platform. He had a tear in the corner of his eye. He looked at me and he shook my hand and he said, I've never heard anything like that before. And you know what the truth of the matter is? He never had heard anything like that before. He was used to attending liberal churches and going to uh, educated and liberal institutions. And all of a sudden that morning, an old-fashioned preacher told the truth. I'm talking about 99 people walked out of their seats and came and gave their hearts to Jesus Christ. One of, those, one of those people that got saved that morning was a man by the name of Walter Moore. Walter Moore was a longtime mayor of Pontiac, Michigan. They, there were two or three families that afternoon eating in the same restaurant that the mayor and his family was eating in. And they said instead of the mayor sitting down to eat with his family, he was going from table to table in that restaurant telling people that he just got saved. He took the pastor and I to eat on Tuesday uh, to the Silverdome where the Detroit Lions played football. There was a restaurant that was open 
every day of the week, and where the Detroit, Detroit Lions played football, where the Detroit Lions tried to play football. And, but before we sat down at our table, he, he was taking us around, he was introducing us to dignitaries, a city in the county there, and when he would introduce me, he said, and this is the man who was preaching Sunday when I got saved. Man, I'm about to have a shouting spell. This man's been saved for less than 72 hours, and he's telling everybody that he got saved. He's not a sheriff. He's not intimidated. Why should you and I be intimidated? I've probably told this story here before, but I love the story, so I'm going to tell it again. I was in our nation's capital, preaching at a, at a Christmas banquet. And again, it was a rather large church, and they, were, they had rented this banquet facility. There was about 1,000 people there that night. Now, I'm not a good banquet speaker. I'll just tell you up front. But I will preach at a banquet. I'll preach at the drop of the hat. I'll help you throw down the hat. I love to preach. But it was a very starchy, a very formal event. So when I got up, I told a couple of jokes just to try to lighten the crowd up a little bit. I told a joke about the truck driver who had been driving his 18-wheeler up and down the super slab all day. He was tired. He was hungry. He pulled into his 18-wheeler into the parking lot of a steakhouse. He parked his 18-wheeler outside, and he came into the steakhouse. He ordered him a great big steak about an inch and a half, two inches thick, cooked just right, cooked medium. Any steak cooked right will be cooked medium. Don't forget I told you that. And then a great big old hot baked potato, butter melting all down the middle of it. He was about ready to eat when all of a sudden three motorcycle hippies pulled up outside. They hadn't had a haircut in several years. They hadn't had a bath in a year. And they parked their motorcycles in. They came in that restaurant making so much noise and racket. And they went over to the truck driver's table and they stole his steak dinner right out from underneath him and went over to the next table and sat down and started eating it. That great big old truck driver got up, pushed his chair into the table, walked over to the cash register and paid the lady for the meal and turned around and walked out. And those motorcycle hippies were carrying on having so much fun. And one of them went to that lady at the cash stretcher and said, that man, said that fellow sure wasn't very much of a man, was he? She said, no, no. And said, he's, he's not very much of a truck driver either. He just drove over three motorcycles parked up front. <laughs> well, everybody in that banquet hall loved that joke that night, except for two guys. There were two fellas there that night I'm not making this up, from the local Hell's Angels Motorcycle Club. The only reason they were in that banquet hall, a layman in that church by the name of Marvin Harris. Marvin now a pastor in Maryland. I preach for him every other year. And Marvin had allowed these two guys to use his shop. He had a huge body shop. He allowed them to use his shop to put an engine in their truck. The only thing they had to do, they didn't have to pay him anything. The only thing they had to do was to come and hear me speak. And they kept their end of the deal. They came. But they didn't hear another word I said. They were mad. Several tables around them that could hear them, they kept saying, we'll get him. They're cussing, carrying on. They said, we'll get him. Well, as service was over, and some of the men from the church came up and told me, said, Tim, be careful. I said, these guys are really upset. 
So I'm out in the foyer at a banquet hall shaking hands, talking to people. And one of these guys came over to me. Now, I'm not exaggerating. This guy was huge. And he looked like your typical Hell's Angel motorcycle clubman. He had hair down past his shoulders, great big old gruffy beard. He had tattoos everywhere. He had a chain hanging off his shoulder. He looked like something you'd see on television with the Hell's Angels. And uh, he came over and he pointed his finger in my face and he began to curse some of the most vile cursing you ever heard in your life. Right in that bank wall. There's 50, 60 people out in the foyer. They just froze. Everybody just stood still while this guy was giving me a cussing. And then finally he stopped. And I looked up at him and I said, sir, I said, what's your name? That always throws them off. They have to stop and think for a minute. He reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a business card. I'm not making this up. It's got a picture of a motorcycle on it. And one word under that motorcycle, and it said Spider-Man. And where everybody could hear him, he said, my name is Spider-Man. I didn't tell him this, but I thought I'd been upset if my mom and dad had named me Spider-Man. With all the courage that I could muster up, I looked up at him and I said, Spider-Man, do you know what you need? It took him by surprise. He wasn't even expecting me to answer. He said, what do I need? I said, you need to get your heart and your life right with God. 